Hello, thanks for stopping by Liberty Sessions, where we unpack one woman's entrepreneurial journey to help another woman launch her own. I'm your host, Netta Jones. Please join me as we start liberating dreams one episode at a time. listeners, welcome to another episode of Liberty Session. Today, we're so excited to bring you Catherine Petrelia of Cabbage, cabbage cabbage.com, that is, not the food. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So why don't you, for those few people that might not know about Cabbage as a platform, why don't you tell us a little bit about your business? Uh, Sure thing. Cabbage's data and technology platform enables real-time lending to small businesses. We do this in two ways, directly in the U.S. Um, To small businesses here, we've deployed over $4 billion to um, over 130,000 small businesses in the U.S. Um, Our customers, on average, spend less than 10 minutes going through the application process um, to get access to capital to fund their businesses. And then um, globally, we license the same platform to large financial institutions that use it to deliver that same user experience to their customers. So um, we are live in seven different countries with large banks like Santander, ING, and Scotiabank. And we're very excited about both of those businesses. Oh, that's awesome. Now, did you, when you started out, were you both local and international or did that international piece grow as the company grew? Oh, yeah. No way. We were just local. We, when we first started, we were actually just making loans to sellers on eBay. Um, there was this little eBay API that allowed third parties to access information about eBay businesses. And that's what sparked the idea. My co-founder, Rob, had the idea. And he called me up and said, hey, what do you think about this little business? And I said, that's a pretty exciting opportunity. We should do that. Um, today, online businesses probably represent less than 10% of our customer population. Um, but the idea that you could automate a small business loan is really where we got our start. And we've stayed true to that. And tell us a little bit about that, you know, launching Cabbage. And so you start out in the online space and at some point you realize there's more opportunity. Where was the opportunity coming from and what made you sort of expand to, we're going to do more aside from, well, we want to grow this company. What made you sort of expand to look at people outside of online businesses? Well, you know, again, our business couldn't have existed 10 years ago in any form because the data, the the real-time access to third-party data wasn't a possibility then. Mm -hmm. This eBay API was just the beginning of it. And so we couldn't have served offline businesses with the experience. We were never trying to prove that small businesses needed access to capital. We were, um, we knew that that was the case, that that was easy. What we were trying to do was create a great user experience and automate the entire process um, and basically create something that we would have wanted to experience as a small business owner. So um, from our perspective, it made natural sense to move into the brick and mortar business once the data was available, being able to get access to checking accounts and um, accounting data and shipping data, social data, payment processing data. As all of that happened, it made it easier for us to expand our reach. And how were these small businesses finding out about you and that Cabbage existed and was an opportunity for them? Well, it's funny. Rob likes to say that there are a thousand shitty ways to uh, market <laughs> to small businesses, and you have to be good at all of them. And so um, we really got our start with online marketing, digital marketing, um, everything from search engine optimization, um, search engine marketing, display advertising. 
Um, the, and then we moved on to all of the other stuff, whether it's radio or direct mail or, um, you know, traditional media, television. Um, we've really done all the things. And so we find our customers many, many different ways. A lot of it is through partnerships with other customer, other businesses that also serve small businesses. Um, it makes sense for us to align our interests and to um, try to find those customers together. Sure. So it could be somebody who provides some sort of sales force. I don't mean the company sales force, but something like that or, or, or somebody who yeah, provides exactly shipping right. opportunities. Okay. That's, um, I, that's, that happens to be a tip for those people listening <laughs> as well. Um, so tell us what kind of fueled the choice to both become an entrepreneur and to also stay in this sort of financial industry. It sounds like you had some background in that industry. Tell us about that. It's funny, I would never have said to my said to people, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. That's not something I, that's not, I didn't identify in that way, despite the fact that this is my seventh startup. So I guess other people <laughs> might have said that about me. That um, sounds like a, like a, a psychological, like analysis kind of issue. I, like, why? <laughs> why would you not have thought of yourself as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I don't know. It just didn't occur to me. Uh -huh. I, don't, I don't know. I don't know why, but <laughs> okay. you know, I, I guess, um, I spent when my 17 year old son was born, that was in 2000. And I spent seven years at a credit company that was really a startup itself when I joined. Um, so in my, you know, for, for a big part of my career, seven years is a long time. I was at this, you know, company where I was an employee. And so I felt like, oh, well, I'm not an entrepreneur. And it, I forgot about the startups that I had before then, you know, and then I, you know, went to a startup from there. And then we started Cabbage. So I think I just always wanted to do the thing that seemed interesting. And I, mm. I always wanted to do something that would make a difference. And I wasn't afraid to take a risk. And my husband, we've been married for 25 years, and he um, was always really supportive of me doing different things. And so I think as a result, it, it just made sense. I never, I'm, I'm not sure I would have done well in an environment, you know, at a big corporation where, you know, you do the same thing over and over again. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it's bad to work at a place like that, but I just don't think that's my thing. Sure. So, um, so I, I naturally was attracted to a place where I could be more entrepreneurial. And, and specifically with Cabbage, you came with financial expertise, but what was it that made you sort of interested in this particular endeavor? What, what kind of gave you that like bright eyed or wide eyed moment of saying, yeah, this could really be something? You know, it was the technology. Um, so I've always been excited about things that use technology, things that were automated. Um, what my, the very first, um, my very first startup, I guess, was a company that was using data compression to deliver software. This was in 1995 to deliver software via the internet, um, as opposed to getting 16 floppy disks from <laughs> Office Depot, you know, to install Windows 95. So um, I, I guess I just always thought it was really interesting when you could use technology to solve a problem. Um, and I grew up with computers. I grew up around, you know, parents who were management consultants and, and engaged in technology. And so I guess it just always seemed normal to me, despite the fact that I was an English major. Well, the, everybody was an English, an English, a history or a poli sci major. And then they sort of figured out what they really <laughs> needed to do to make money. My husband being uh, one of those people. So uh, tell us a little bit about, okay, we were hearing your background in Cabbage, but just again, for those people who are not familiar with the platform, what, how does the business, what is the business model? Like explain how it works on your end and then how it works for the consumer. Sure. So from our perspective, we're just trying to get access to information that helps us understand business performance. And we do that again using um, real-time access to third-party verified data sources. So a customer comes to our website, 
They give us a tiny little bit of information about themselves and their business, like their name and their business name and their address and things that we need to verify identity for, you know, regulatory purposes. Um, and then we also ask for access to information that we can use to gauge business performance. Um, that could include a checking account. That could include their QuickBooks account, um, payment processing data, social media data. Um, if they're an online business, which many of our customers are both brick and mortar and online, it might mm -hmm. be... Um, their eBay or PayPal information or Amazon data or Etsy or Yahoo, um, you name the place where they may transact or operate online and that information helps us also. And then we use all that information to basically build um, an income statement for our customers so that they don't have to do it. One of the most challenging things about getting a loan from a bank, if you're a small business, is all the documentation you have to provide. You have to explain to them what your business plan and that they need a financial statement and you need bank statements and you need articles of incorporation and all kinds of things that are, you know, frankly, a little bit daunting for most business owners. I was an English sure. major. So with my first business, when I was 25, if somebody would have asked me for all that stuff, I would have said, what? Yeah. How do I even yeah. do that? Do I need an accountant? Yeah. I don't know what to do. I'm really confused. You know what? I don't need a loan. Yeah. Yeah. Never mind. Forget it. It's, it's too much. Um, and so these people that are pursuing you guys are they when you when you say small business let's put small businesses on sort of this continuum where are they in terms of what kind of revenue are they producing per year what kind of loan size are they asking for um you know that's changed over the years um so average revenue for our customers is you know probably uh, i would say approaching the Gosh, I'm trying to think what the right number is for this. I, you know, it's in the it's in the several million dollars a year category from okay. a revenue perspective. But okay. keep in mind that that it could be customers generating, you know, fifty thousand dollars a year in revenue or fifty million dollars a year in revenue. I'm just giving you an average. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, businesses with one to twenty employees, um, most of them are seeking less than a quarter of a million dollars, and that, that's really the important point: is how much money do these businesses need? The challenge that they have getting access to capital from a bank is really right there. So banks have a hard time deploying less than $250,000 in capital, not because they don't want to deliver it. They serve these customers. 80% of our business customers bank with the top 10 banks. They just can't get a loan from them. Not because the banks don't want to serve them, but because it's expensive for them to underwrite a loan of that size. It's, sure. it's just as expensive for them to do a $25 million loan. So they'd rather do those because they make more money. And I don't blame them. So from our perspective, we're just trying to make that process easier for them. So our customers give us access to the data. We use to understand how their business is performing, and then we set the line for them. And then we give them a line of credit, and that's important too, because then they can borrow only what they need when they need it. They're not pushed to borrow more than they need, and they don't have to worry about, well, what if I need more three months from now? Yeah, it's interesting to me that a business could actually, I mean, it ends up being you're doing the R&D for them. So you're figuring out where the tension is of, we know you want all this money to be able to to purchase XYZ, to ship whatever these deliverables are, but we actually can find that line for you between what you actually need based on all these data points um, to, to move forward without putting you in a precarious situation. So I would be curious as a company just just to hear the what feedback you had in terms of what should I be um, borrowing and what what is not going to put my company in a compromising situation do you find that a lot of people are coming to you and feeling like you're adding a, a value as a almost from an accounting point of view for them i think that's a big part of it because yeah. now they don't have to worry about that 
Um, you know, when you are, if you open a hair salon, you know, probably it's because you're passionate about fashion, you're passionate about hair, and you're passionate about helping people look great. And you're probably not passionate about accounting yeah. and payroll. Safe and, to say. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I suspect they're not either. So the idea is how can you make it easier for them to do the things they love yeah. and let somebody else do the things that help their business operate? You know, I, I love it. And it's unique to, to Cabbage in terms of other places that people can secure loans outside of SBA um, loans. It, it's interesting to me that you provide that because I've, I feel like um, there are lots of people who would say, okay, I need $100,000 for XYZ. And it wouldn't be until they sat down with an expert, in this case, Cabbage, that they would say, in fact, you actually need $65,000. That's the real, that's where the, that line of credit is also equal to the appropriate amount of tension between what you need and what's going to move you forward without putting you in a compromising situation. And I, and that's a really important point uh, so that people aren't compromised because a lot of times it's hard to know what makes sense, but what we don't Mm -hmm. want to do is put someone in a position where it's going to be really hard for them to satisfy that obligation, not because they don't want to, and not because we think they're going to make a bad decision, but because it's just hard. Yeah. It is hard. It is hard. And sometimes even as entrepreneurs and small business owners, whether you consider yourself an entrepreneur or not, your appetite, your your eyes see more or want more than what you actually need. Um, is that how that saying goes? Like your your eyes, there's an app, there's a saying. Your there. eyes are bigger than your stomach. That, thank yes. you. There. Thanks for consolidating what I was trying to say. Um, I want to back up really quickly. So I know from doing a little research that you guys launched in sort of the height of the financial crisis. Am I correct on that? You are correct because we are really, really, really dumb. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Where I was going with that is, so during that time, so I've spent many years as a a small business consultant. And during that time, um, there was no way anybody was securing a loan from a, from a bank. It was like, sorry, that faucet's turned off. So wouldn't that in fact have made you guys one of the only places to go or, or a natural sort of next place to go if they weren't able to get it from, um, from a, from a bank, then they would search out what are some other opportunities and lo and behold, Cabbage, this new company has launched. Yeah, of course, if I had unlimited access to capital myself, that would have made it really easy. <laughs> but unfortunately, we were dealing oh, with the same problem. wait a minute, you problem. didn't? <laughs> In a different way. You know, you can Google, um, you know, counter-cyclical successful businesses. You'll see a lot of them like Oracle and Apple and like all the big companies. They all were counter-cyclical when they started. So there is a lot to be said for starting a business, you know, in a in a difficult economic environment, which is exactly what we did. Um, and so it was hard. Um, and we had to work really hard and listen to a lot, of no, a lot of no's. And a lot of people told us that our baby was ugly. The nice thing about it was it put us in a position so that when times were good again, we actually had some experience. We'd already made some mistakes, but we weren't so big. Those mistakes took us down. Um, and so taking that risk early on and being, as I mentioned, you know, kind of dumb, not, I, I really don't mean that in some ways I do. I know, just, I know what you mean. We just yeah. powered through it. Yeah. And we're like, yeah, it's really hard, but we're just going to keep doing it. I would say we're stubborn more than anything else. Um, but doing that put us in a much better position because the enemy that every startup has is time. 
Mm. Um, you time is the enemy. It's the it's the it's the commodity of which you have the least, and it is the thing that gives you competitive advantage. So if you can take advantage of it, um, that puts you in the best position for success. That's right. It's also the equalizer. We all have that same amount of time, and so how do you use that? How do you get in uh, into the market ahead of the market? Make the market aware. Um, it's how you utilize that, that commodity. Um, okay. So go back to, so we did launch, um, during this very, um, precarious time, but what, what did you get from that outside of internally your own expertise and your own, you, you were stubborn and you guys stayed in the game, but what did you get out of that? What did you gain access to in terms of what consumers became, uh, or what consumers were coming to you for? Did it prove to be a meaningful um, time for you to gain access to people who didn't have any other place to go? I think what it gave us is an opportunity to build a brand. And I wouldn't have thought that was important nine years ago when we started the company, but it really was. Um, our customers like our brand. They know our brand. People who aren't our customers know our brand. And the fact that we invested in that early on and that people have begun talking about us and that um, I think our brand means more than just a place where you can go get a small business loan. I think people think our brand is that we stand up for small businesses. Yeah. And yeah. So I think the opportunity to build that brand was really important. We yeah. didn't even know yeah. it at the time. We just did it. We we didn't sit down one day in 2010 and say, okay, number two on the agenda is we're going to build a brand. We just didn't. We just did it. Yeah. Well, it's probably why it came across and why it was so strong because it came from a what are our assets? What are we trying to give to our client? And let, let's just talk about that and let's tell them what that is versus let's try and um, put lipstick on a, a pig. And perhaps that's not really authentically who we are. That's not really what we have to offer. You guys were offering your services uh, and telling that story. And in essence, the brand became um, a tool for people and it became synonymous with the people that you help. Uh, you're an advocate for, if you will, the small business um, owner. You're somebody who helps them to kind of take the next step and walk alongside them. And all the things we talked about with even just the tension of how much the line of credit is for, you're somebody that is an expert in their space. You're in their, you know, you're in the ring with them. And I, I love that as somebody, again, who works with lots of small businesses, they, they don't have access to a lot of people who are in the ring with them. Um, and so that's great. Tell us quickly, I asked a, a second ago, and I, I'm sorry, I didn't fully, um, I didn't pursue the question a little bit more, but I want to go back. How do you guys make money so that people listening really understand when I engage with Cabbage, what is it that I'm paying out? How am I utilizing them as a service and, and paying for that service? Sure thing. We make money um, on fees when customers borrow from us. So if you sign up for a Cabbage line of credit, you don't pay us anything if you just have it. So you get a $50,000 line, you want to save it for a rainy day, Got or it. maybe you think you're going to get it, need some inventory in six months, whatever it is, you don't pay anything. Um, if you borrow money from us, then you pay us a fee when you borrow the money and you pay us a fee as long as you have that loan outstanding. And when you pay it off, you stop paying us. So um, it's a little bit different in that respect. You're not paying for the line of credit. You're not paying upfront for fees. Um, you're only paying when you have a line outstanding or a loan outstanding. Um, and that's pretty much the only way we make money. Although I will say we are looking to expand um, 
and are actively expanding our product pool so that we can offer other relevant products and services to our customers. Everything from payment processing to payroll to um, back office solutions, um, yeah. other things yeah. that our customers need, insurance products. Um, so, you know, we're, we, we believe that it'd be easier for our customers to only have to go to one place to do a yes. lot of their work. That is, that is more than a belief. That is a fact. <laughs> well, <laughs> that is, that is just a that. truth. <laughs> that is a truth right there. Yeah. So that's something that you guys are rolling out right now, those different yes, platforms. Yes, it seems like there's a lack of transparency for a lot of people. Um, like they don't understand how much they pay to accept credit cards. They don't understand um, the fees for payroll. They don't understand, oh my gosh, accounting packages are so complicated. Yeah. And everybody uses yeah. them differently. And at the end of the day, after you finish you know, your monthly statement, you feel like you need to hire an accountant just to make sure that you didn't mess it up because it's really absolutely. complicated. Yeah, absolutely. And never mind getting into the tax issues and depending on the state <laughs> you're in. And Exactly. We won't, we won't even we go into that. We think we can that. do a lot of that work. We can do the work for our customers because we have the data. Why should they have to build an income statement? We, we have the information and do a forum. Sure. Sure. Well, let us know when that's all up and running because we know <laughs> a few people we can send your way. So well, you, we, we'll you, keep <laughs> okay. you mentioned earlier that you didn't have all the money in the world when you launched. Um, and so tell us a little bit about what you did have. Did you guys start up Cabbage with your own capital, you and the other founder? Did you guys seek out capital? How did you start yourself? Uh, there were three of us and we used our own money. And um, for a while, and we, we raised some seed capital, which was much harder than we expected. And um, we almost immediately, so we got together in, in late 2008 to say, hey, let's do this thing. And then by the summer of 2009, we're in the West Coast trying to raise some money for what was effectively a PowerPoint. And surprisingly, we didn't get any. Um, <laughs> and so we, we, we closed a seed round um, that was friends, and fam friends, family, and fools, as mm -hmm. one of us like to say. Um, in um, early 2010. And so we didn't close our first institutional round until late 2010. Um, so we spent a lot of time basically building out the product. We, and as I mentioned, we weren't trying to prove that small businesses needed access to capital. That was a, a known fact mm -hmm. by pretty much everyone at the time. So we really were building technology that enabled the automation. So when our first um, institutional investor came on board and we got our term sheets, they were excited that we had done the thing we said we were going to do. We met with them in 2009. They said no. And then we said, okay, well, we'll come back to you and we do the thing. We did the thing. We went back to them and they said, oh, wow, you did what you said you were going to do. That's really interesting. And you have customers. That's really interesting. Um, and you have momentum. So I'd love to invest. And that was really important that we started their relationship before it made any sense for them to invest, but we kept them posted. I think that's um, whether you're getting money from grandpa who's who's <laughs> giving you some amount that's contingent on on your progress or you're actually going after VC dollars. I think that's an important thing to to keep in mind um, is just always keeping those people abreast of what you're doing, how you're fulfilling the things you said you were going to do um, before you go in and ask for more or just to sustain, um, you know, uh, I guess, faith in the amount of money you've already asked for. Now, let me ask you a question because it's interesting to me that I don't know what the uh, background or the expertise of your partners was, but I do know a little bit about yours and you've shared that you were part of all these startups and that you were in both tech and the credit space. But what were they, what were the VCs saying yes to? Was it 
it wasn't your experience. You know, we hear this, they invest in people and, and these ideas, but in fact, it wasn't until you guys had gone out and said, or, or did what you said you were going to do that they invested. What, what was that for them? Was it you guys were good people that you were able to do what you said you were going to do or set out to do? Was it that the model was being realized or perfected? What was it that you think they were saying yes to? I like the way you asked that question. I, I do believe that at the end of the day, they were investing in the team. Mm -hmm. And so then you say to yourself, well, why didn't they invest in you on day one? Why did they say no the first time? But I think mm -hmm. they want to know that you're going to do the thing you say you're going to do. So mm -hmm. I, I think that's important. Um, you know, we we always joke that people, our investors invested, we've raised almost half a billion dollars over the last, not that that's, you know, an achievement, but over the last nine years, um, and I think a lot of it is because people wanted to join the party, and I put the party in quotes. Um, they believed in the team. They believed we could execute. We had very different backgrounds. Um, my co-founder, Rob, who's our CEO, he um, he was an attorney, but also had a strong intellectual property background. He'd been involved in fintech companies and, you know, a serial entrepreneur. Our other co-founder, Mark, um, also a serial entrepreneur. He had a lot of um, connections in the investment world. Um, so it, it just made, I mean, the, the three of us together, um, I think we just proved that when we set out to do something, we're going to do it. And we had enough diversity of skills, um, that, that they were comfortable with that. So I, I think it's really a combination of things to keep in mind that it was a really, really, really hard time to raise money for this sure. kind of business. And we're in Atlanta, we're in Atlanta and we're raising money from the West coast. We had multiple companies say to us the summer of 2009, we'd love to invest if you move to San Francisco. <laughs> well, why? we live in Atlanta. Yeah, wh <laughs> why do you think? Why do they need Francisco? proximity to you? What's What was that all about? Because they're lazy. They don't want to get on a plane and see how things are going. <laughs> it's, that's all. Okay, nobody, uh, hopefully none of them are listening to this and get, going to get mad are. at you. <laughs> <laughs> change their bad habits. Um, <laughs> no, thank you for, I, I appreciate the honesty actually. Now, having said that, do you think that if you guys had approached them in today's climate that you would have gotten to a yes sooner? Um, not today, only because now sort of we're at the other end of the curve. Right, so we right, did it at a really right, hard time when nobody was doing it and nobody wanted to say yes. And there was like this huge period of time where everybody got funded. And now Nobody's getting funding getting funded because everybody's looking on to the next thing. Sure. I think everybody's involved sure. in cybercurrencies or whatever. Cryptocurrency, sorry. Yeah. I just tried to read a, an article on all of it, and I was like, I don't. I, this needs to be deciphered by somebody else who can give me an analogy because I don't get it. I don't get it. Um, so tell us just really quickly, um, when small businesses are – working with you guys, benefiting from, from what you have to offer. A lot of our listeners are, are kind of in the startup phase. Um, they're in that one to five year, let's even say one to three year where they're, they've, they've passed ideation. They've, you know, kind of vetted the idea. They've got an audience, perhaps even they built that audience on another platform or through another company and, and, and now they're launching with XYZ. It doesn't sound to me like Cabbage is um, a place for startup dollars. It's really operating um, dollars. Is that true? I just want to make sure we've got people going to Cabbage and utilizing it for what it actually can provide or offer them. It's true. I, I, I wish that I could offer startup capital, 
The problem is I my system has to use data yeah. to understand yeah. business performance. And if you don't have a business, then it's hard for me to understand that. Um, my best advice to startup entrepreneurs is to figure out how you can fund it yourself. You can do that on credit cards. Not ideal. We did it. You can do it with, you know, loans from places like Lending Club and Prosper and Marcus and those guys. And, you know, again, the problem is it impacts your personal credit score. If you are really committed to the business, um, you should use your personal credit because yeah. you believe that it's going to be successful. It's, it's as long as your family members are, you know, supportive and it's something you can accommodate. That's really the only way to do it. Banks require the same thing. SBA loans for startups require the same thing. There's usually a personal guarantee. Um, yeah. Bank loans for established businesses even require a personal guarantee, which is crazy. Yeah. We don't. Yeah. And that's, and I wanted to make that distinction, not to point out that you guys aren't doing small business loans, but to make sure that when people are listening to this and check out cabbage.com, that their, their expectation is realistic, that they're not in year one and haven't realized really anything meaningful on the revenue side and trying to go after a, 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 a short-term loan. Um, but so if you're in month 14 and you have revenue, yeah. we can probably work with you. Okay. We're, you know, we're going to hold you to that. Yes. No, it it is early. And in fact, everybody talks about how when you're in that startup time, time truly flies. And so you'll be at month 14 soon enough. Uh, and Cabbage will be a great solution for you at that time. So I'm going to transition us a little bit into thank you for sharing your story and the Cabbage story. Um, I want you now to kind of put your expert hat on based on your experience at Cabbage and as an entrepreneur to really help um, those listening um, kind of disseminate like good decisions, bad decisions, tips, tools, resources, things that are, have been takeaways uh, for you that could be takeaways from them. So Catherine, I wanted to go back to something you had said earlier when we talked about, so then Cabbage began as a, as a local business. It was a, you know, here in the United States. And then you guys took advantage of this overseas opportunity, not by having cabbage as a brand go overseas, but by licensing the mechanism, uh, the mechanism, sorry, of cabbage. Can you advise our listeners as to how they might be able to, in other industries, how they might be able to utilize that same sort of licensing opportunity outside of their own market, let's say? I think the internet has created incredible opportunities for people with great ideas to export those ideas internationally in a way that could never have been done before. Um, we have customers who have, um, I'm thinking of one customer in particular who developed a very specific hair product um, and she has made that a global product thanks to the internet. There are tons of companies like Alibaba that facilitate mm. global trade um, for manufacturers to distribute their products around the world. Um, and I think even, you know, Google and Facebook and, you know, the usual companies, I think, are enabling that kind of conversation. So without a doubt, if you're really, really good at something and there's a big demand for it in the U.S., you can bet there's a big demand somewhere else, too. Um, and it, it, now's a great time to take advantage of that opportunity. Okay, that's awesome. And and I assume that the company, let's say that in this um, hair care example, they're not able to do it because there are restrictions in other countries that they might not be aware of. So why not find somebody else who knows how to handle that? And you're just really selling the brand or the formula or the whatever. Or it's just hard. You yeah. know, you don't want to have people on the ground in Singapore because you just, you don't want to go there all the time and manage sure. that kind of people. But 
can actually offer your product or your service. Or, I mean, the best thing is, is guidance and advice and anything that you can do digitally because um, that doesn't require anything. There's no supply chain for, um, you know, intellectual property. So I think there's a lot of great opportunity to help other people do what you're doing even sure. and to make money. That. And I would even say from a branding marketing point of view, it's a, it, you're, you're, it's a completely different audience and you want to make sure you're communicating the right thing or the sellable thing, depending on whatever cultural sensitivities or whatever. So it, it goes even beyond legal and financial and, and um, product expertise. It goes, it goes to how do you communicate to that audience? That's helpful. Exactly. Um, I think that's something that more people need to start utilizing. How do I expand that expertise or scale that expertise or that product knowledge? So you guys did something really cool this past October. Cabbage recognized National Women's Small Business Month, and you guys were providing spotlights on women, blog posts, personal stories um, on female leaders on Cabbage. I'm curious what percent of women-owned businesses are applying for Cabbage's funding or loans? And do you see that growing? Do you see that we're on a kind of trajectory of, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, or are, is it sort of plateauing a little bit? Um, so we don't actually collect demographic information about our applicants. I don't ask if someone is a male or a female or their ethnicity or anything else, but we've done some analysis um, trying to that. Um, some of the regulatory agencies um, and the government, they have these, these, um, I'm going to call it a black box, but they have these algorithms that they apply to try to figure out how um, underserved populations are being served by financial mm -hmm. institutions. And so we've used some of those algorithms and determined that we're actually serving um, women and minorities, but particularly women, at double the rate of peer in the small business population. So let's just say there are 100 small businesses um, and 25% of them are women. Um, in our population, half of them would be women. So okay. we're, we're serving more women-owned businesses than appear in the general population. I think the reason for that is that, um, you know, the internet is the great equalizer. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it democratizes access to all kinds of services, including capital, because you don't have to walk into a bank branch. The anonymity of that application process makes it easier for many people to do it because you're not worried about being judged. You're already being judged on your business. You're being judged on your performance. Do you want to be judged because of your gender um, or your ethnicity or any other thing about you? So I think it makes it easier for folks to apply and maybe that's part of the skew. And is that, so, so is it intentional that you don't ask or is it because of a regulatory uh reason or issue that you don't ask about gender? I would say it's intentional. A, it never occurred to us to ask. I don't think it's relevant or meaningful or important. It's good probably for you guys. That's awesome. Time's up. Hashtag time's up. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted. It's probably not legal either. I don't actually yeah. know, but it's not something that I would ever have done. It's just not, it, the information we care about is, is your business It's a non-issue. Yeah, it's a non-issue. Um, that's interesting. And so it sounds like based on what data you have been able to kind of pull together, again, not from directly from cabbage resources, but just what you are pulling seems to match kind of the national rate of growth of women entering entrepreneurship. So that, that seems consistent. Um, so let's talk about people utilizing in these, you know, where are people going to get funding? And a lot of them are going after crowdfunding platforms to raise money for their business versus applying for a small business loan. But as we know um, from personal experience, you know, that's a, 
doing that sort of campaign is it's really putting yourself out there um, in a way that can or might not pay off, depending on if you have a platform and if you have followers and people that you can mobilize to help you um, on any one of those crowdfunding uh, campaigns or, or platforms. But can you offer some advice as to why somebody may or may not do that? I think you may have already answered this earlier when you talked about in that startup phase, maybe that crowdfunding thing is a great opportunity for you, but it's not where you go for a loan. Any, anything that you can offer to help listeners understand the distinction between what you guys do versus going after a crowdfund campaign or crowdfunding campaign. And while we understand that to be, um, two completely different opportunities, I'd love to hear you articulate it. Cause I think some people are still confused about what do I have access to in terms of funding opportunities or capital out there you, you, utilizing the internet? You know, I think crowdfunding is typically a contribution. It's a donation that doesn't expect a return. Usually the return is in the form of early access to a product or service that's being developed and or the general satisfaction that you help somebody do a thing they wanted to do. Um, and that usually happens before there's revenue, before there's a product, before there's a company, before there's an investment opportunity. Um, a loan is a little bit different in that we don't take a piece of your company. So if you go out and raise money and you give away part of your company for that, um, then whomever invested obviously gets a piece of your company going forward, which may come in the form of dividends or a piece of the revenue or um, a say in what happens next in your business or a piece of it if you sell. A loan is just a transaction. You know, you just say, okay, I need a hundred grand to do a thing. And once I do it, I'm going to pay it back and it's going to cost me a fee and that's it. So, um, you know, there's, there's certainly cost associated with the loan, but there's not a long-term cost with it. And it gives you exactly what you need when you need it. It's easier and it's faster. Um, and it's more for an established business, a business that has revenue that can be demonstrated over some period of time. Um, that's how I would categorize the three options. I, I will say raising equity is really hard for a yeah. company that doesn't have a big market potential. Um, most venture investors, unless it's like a friend or a family member are going to look for the big idea businesses. They're not looking for, um, you know, a local restaurant that may have an opportunity to expand into two restaurants. That's not a venture capital opportunity. Right. Right. Uh, let me ask you, how does somebody, so let's go back to that four, in, in 14 months, come back to us and maybe we've, you know, capital, uh, cabbage has got some capital for you or, or a loan opportunity for you. So let's go back to how would you, let's say I'm, um, a startup and I say to you, okay, Catherine, I want to at month 14 come to you guys for a loan. What sorts of things, what sorts of business activity should I be doing to secure the data that you'll need to see in 14 months to warrant a loan. Yeah. The number one advice I have is don't commingle your personal and your business transactions. Okay. That's just good advice, period. Yeah. Yeah. Get a business checking account, have your business transactions there. Use one. If you're using a credit card, only use that credit card for business purposes. Um, if you can use some sort of accounting software like Xero or QuickBooks or somebody else, uh, just be organized. 
from Cabbage's perspective, we want to be able to get access to that easily. So we want to be able to get to your business checking account, get to your QuickBooks account, um, your payment processing data, whatever it is. We want to be able to get to that information um, in an automated way. But in general, just staying organized is really important. That's, that's great. So I think for those of you listening right now, um, we will make sure to have some of the um, resources that Catherine just mentioned uh, listed in the show notes as links. Because I think if you are in that startup, even if you're already at month or year two, but you don't think that you would qualify for something uh, from for a loan from Cabbage for any reason, we'd love to get you set up to get organized and to eventually get yourself in the space where that would be an opportunity. So we'll provide those for you. Um, so speaking of that, um, so, uh, some resources, can you recommend apps, third-party platforms that you've used personally that have made kind of your life a little bit more efficient or maybe things that um, you like to see cabbage um, customers using that, again, going back to the question I just asked, if you use these things, they really, they'll help you get organized and in turn help us give you a loan. Um, anything that you can recommend, it could even be like meal prep, something that helps you. You mentioned you're a mother of two. Any, anything that you can offer our busy entrepreneurial woman? Ask for help. You know, from anybody, you know, whether it's your parents or your siblings or your neighbors or your friends or your spouse, or your children, um, don't be shy and ask for help. People who are entrepreneurial tend to be independent and they want to do things on their own and they don't want to ask for help. So you have to be willing to let people help you. I suck at that. Um, my husband's been a stay-at-home dad for 17 years and I still am crazy bossy about things. And I don't want to say to him, Hey, I really need you to get up early tomorrow to help me do a thing because I feel like I should be getting up with a baby because I'm gone all day. Like you just have to get over it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, um, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I think you're absolutely right that there's something about the personality of an entrepreneur that finds that, um, a difficult thing to do. Perhaps that's part of what made them an entrepreneur in the first place. <laughs> they're, they're independent <laughs> and wanted to do their own thing, which is further evidence that you actually are an entrepreneur, by the way. I'm just, just here to point that out to you. Um, so this, this, so any apps that you want to recommend while we're at, while we're on the subject? Apps. Um, so we started using this, um, this is dumb, but this is, we use HelloFresh. <laughs> yes. It's um, not dumb. <laughs> it's good stuff. Yeah. So, <laughs> So we do that. I have to, I'm going to admit something. My husband texted me while I was doing this interview and said, you need to check out the baby. I put him down for a nap and he's doing something funny. So because we have a nest camera in the nursery, while we were talking, I was able to watch him, Aww. you know, be crazy in his crib. So I feel connected. So any sort of app that lets you see your family or your kids when you're not there, I think is really great. Um, awesome. So awesome. I was watching my one-year-old bebop around in his crib just now. Oh, that's, that's very cool. And that's a nice little shout out to Nest. <laughs> You're welcome, Nest. <laughs> no, that's well, great. Right. Not just Nest, lots of places right. do it. That's right. There you go. That's just the one you happen to use. That's awesome. I so, think the other thing is just do what you have to do. I, you know, I, I had a baby, I'm 47. So I was 46 when I had this one year old, we're pretty crazy. Um, but I am, um, I've been nursing for the last yeah. 12 months. I have pumped everywhere, like all over the place. And it's been really nice to use a couple of apps. Um, there was one called pump spotting that I used that made me feel like I wasn't super crazy for having to do this everywhere I went. And it made me feel a little more confident about sitting in the, you know, Delta lounge. and. <laughs> <laughs> 
because that's just what I had to do. You know, so I, I think anything that supports whatever is going on in your life is really great. Um, whether it's family or about your parents. I mean, we all have aging parents we have to take care of. Um, your personal life is really important and you can't ignore it. You have to find ways that you can connect to your family. I love that. Thank you for that. Thank you for validating for all of those who are not sure if that's okay, that it is okay. And thanks for offering the very specifics of the the apps and the, the resources. Again, we'll have those listed for you in the show notes. So you're talking about family, you're talking about, you know, your husband's um, getting you up early or you getting him up early and wanting to be, be able to participate in the family and this young child that you have, never mind the 17 year old. That's not, you know, you're not off the hook there either. <laughs> He's still more self-sufficient right now. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly more than the one-year-old, I would hope. Um, but there, I think there are a lot of women who are kind of, we've talked about doubling in numbers that are entering entrepreneurship. And a lot of them are struggling with finding this balance and we know that while entrepreneurship can provide flexibility and, and it can provide um, sort of this open range, this place to be a pioneer and all this good stuff, it's also very overwhelming and it's very daunting and it requires all of you and a lot of you. And whenever I hear somebody saying, well, I'll just do this on the side, I'm like, be pretty clear that on the side means somewhere around 40 to 60 hours. So what what advice do you want to give to those women that are launching? And do you think that success in the early years is a predictor of long-term success? What's a predictor of long-term success? I think the willingness to give up a lot of other things to invest in the business or the idea or whatever it is, I think that's a predictor. I think commitment is really, really important. And when, for example, we talked to investors, one of their questions when we were very, very young was, um, so is, are you doing this full time? Mm, yeah. All of you, are you, are you doing this all the time? And our answer was yes, because we were. Yeah. You know, that has to be on your LinkedIn profile. That has to be the answer to your question. When you go to a cocktail party, um, when people ask you what you're doing, your answer has to be that thing. You have to be committed. And so for women who are taking this entrepreneurial plunge, um, do you think that their success is contingent on that level of commitment or would you call somebody, and this is, this is not to diminish in any way anybody who's doing sort of a hobby or, you know, barely monetizing a hobby. But would you say that the real predictor is that level of commitment and that commitment equals time and how much time they're putting into it? it yes. And, and okay. I, and I don't want to minimize or marginalize, but there are lots and lots of people, men and women who have, you know, these really great home-based businesses, whether you're brewing beer or making jewelry, or being a consultant, or you're um, a, a designer. There are lots of different part-time jobs that you can do and be very successful. You're probably not raising money for that business, um, whether it's a loan or whether it's an investment. So when you when you go to somebody and ask them for money, you're saying, hey, you know, this is going to be really successful, and there's going to be growth here, and I need you to trust me that I'm going to make this happen. That doesn't usually happen for the guy brewing beer in his basement or mm -hmm. the woman, you know, who has, you know, a, a great new product for um, babies who are teething. Right. And to that end, I would say they've they've already set up what the terms or the definition of success is by 
how much time or energy they've put in, they're putting into it. If success for the baby teether product is I want to sell 20 units a week or a month, that success can be matched. And so in their case, they're succeeding um, relative to what you just said is if you're going after money, then that level of commitment in order to succeed needs to be greater and you need to be all in. That's exactly right. Okay. Thank you. I think that's helpful. So um, before we get into sort of this fun little cute, you know, uh, quick six, we call it um, section, I just wanted to ask you one last time, kind of what's your parting advice for the entrepreneur who's listening, for the woman who's, again, anywhere from ideation to year five or even 10, who's, who's really looking for some words of wisdom from someone who... Um, has achieved success, um, has defined and achieved success on her terms, and who, um, as far as TechCrunch and a lot of other people are concerned, you're, 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 you've made it into the top lists of women in tech and women of note in that industry. So what does somebody like you want to impart to our listener? You know, I, I would say don't let anybody, this is so, I feel like this is so trite, but, you know, don't listen to the naysayers. Um, I, and also, you know, figure out what you really want and focus on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, what's important is that you're able to build and grow the business you want to grow, not what your neighbor or your local newspaper or, you know, your high school you know, math teacher thinks about you. That stuff isn't important. What's important is, you know, the family, the people that you live with and the people that you work with, that they're all excited and supportive of what you're doing and that you feel like every day you're doing more of what you want to do. Um, I, I think that is the most important thing. If you get caught up in what everybody thinks about you, then I think you get distracted by that. Yeah. And you utilize or, or look for platforms where you can get attention, which is has less to do with the bottom line than your ego. <laughs> um, so it's, yeah. it's not, it's not a good space to be looking for validation. Um, okay. Thank you for that. Now we're going to get into these six, um, fun questions that are just going to help our listener to get to know you a little bit better. So I'm just going to ask you quickly six questions and just whatever comes to mind, um, give us your answer. So do you prefer a nine to five or a flex schedule? Oh, I'm definitely a flex schedule person. Okay. And when you say flex schedule, given the commitment to time that we just talked about, I assume that means I'm working the same amount of hours, but in a way that's convenient for me and my family and, and the needs of the company. Is that true? Yes. If okay. I get to the office before nine o'clock, people are concerned that there's something really bad happening. <laughs> that's good. That's good. It's good to know. Are there lots of late nights in that flex schedule? Um, of course. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm, I can work more easily that way. The last year has been a little bit weird because of the baby, but generally I've been like a nine 30 or 10 o'clock to whenever person. Okay. Okay. And then do you prefer vacationing in the mountains or the beach? You know, I've always said mountains for my whole life, but then there's this baby thing and I actually just want to sit around cause I'm exhausted. Yeah. Okay. And you're so allowed, maybe. you're allowed to do that. So, <laughs> so beach at least for the next three years, and then you may transition back. Well, maybe the next five years, and then That's you may transition back. I like cities that. actually. I'm a city's person. I'd much rather go to a big city, some other place and see stuff. That's more of my thing. Oh, we're going to need to add that. Okay. Catherine, you've, you, now we're adding one more thing. We're going to have to ask like, add, or add an urban environment into that. Um, okay. Would you prefer working from a home or from your home or from an office that you have to leave the house for? So not a home office, but 
a, a separate building. A, an office office every single day of the week, because otherwise I would neurotically be doing laundry and dusting baseboards um, and, you know, whatever, organizing cupboards. That's what I would be doing all the time on every single conference call. It, I can't be at home. Well, if you ever want to take a conference call at my house, I've got bu- <laughs> d- um, baseboards and cabinets that need org- organizing all day long. Um, okay. Would, do you like working with a team or alone? Team. Team. Definitely with a team. Not even a hesitation. And then I say this is the hardest question, Thai or Mexican food? Oh, it is really hard yes. because I really I love chips and salsa, but yeah. I think I'm going to go Thai. Okay. If you're in LA ever... Um, I'm a chips and salsa connoisseur. So you just call me and I will take you to the best (laughs) chips and salsa in town. Um, Well, thanks. You're welcome. We might throw in a margarita too. I'll be Uh, there soon. I'll let you know. Okay. Well, let me know. And then what does it mean to you to be liberated? This, you know, podcast is called Liberty Sessions. Our brand is called Liberty. Um, We launched with the intention of really liberating women through entrepreneurship, through having them experience, um, something that they're called to do, something that's meaningful to do, something that leaves or makes an impact on the world. So what does it mean to you or for you rather to be liberated? I think it means that I only need to satisfy my own expectations, not the expectations of other people. That's a quotable. You'll, we'll be seeing that on, um, on Instagram. I can tell that's awesome. How long did it take you to get to that wisdom? I just thought of it. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're just showing off. Come on. No, I'm not. I really just thought of it because I saw this question yesterday and I was like, oh shit, I'm never going to come up with an answer to that. And then it just came to me. So I'm excited. I had, I'm a procrastinator. And the reason I like procrastinating is that I always find that my brain works in the background so that whenever I need the thing, my, it's, it's there. It's there for you. That's there for yeah. you. Well, it is a good one. We will definitely take it. And it's a great way to end this podcast. Thank you so much for your time, your expertise, sharing a little bit of your own story and the cabbage story. I think there are a lot of people that will be hearing from that'll be checking you guys out. So I so appreciate you hanging out with us today. I really appreciate you having me. It's been really fun. Absolutely. And Liberty listeners, uh, we'll see you guys next week or we'll talk to you next week. Bye for now. Liberty Sessions is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Liberty Sessions on Apple Podcast. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping you to launch and grow your own ventures. You can also find us every day on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Liberty For Her. And please leave a comment using the hashtag Liberty Sessions. We want to hear your thoughts, suggestions, and brilliant ideas. Liberty Sessions is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Wyndham and music by Jordan Flower. 